Thank you so much, Pastor Adrin, and welcome everyone to our Christmas service. I give you one more opportunity to eyeball the person next to you, and through your eyeballs, show God's love. Can you do that? To greet each other? And all those tuning in online, it's very important that as we gather as God's people, we understand that God has come to offer us nothing less than His saving love and peace that must be enjoyed as His people. So an incomparable Christmas. What does that mean? We all love stories, but what are the standout stories, the incomparable stories? Here is one. A family of elephants were crossing a road in eastern Chatburi province in Thailand. Suddenly, a motorcyclist hit the baby elephant of that family. Passers-by quickly stopped to help. Some rushed to help the motorcyclist, some rushed to help the baby elephant. And one of them who rushed to the baby elephant was a Mr. Mana Srivat or Srivate. He started giving CPR to the elephant. He tried and he tried, but no movement. Then all of a sudden, after about 10 minutes, the elephant stirred and finally stood up. Mr. Srivate started to cry when the baby elephant started to move. And we asked ourselves, how did he succeed in saving an elephant? He was a rescue worker. He had rescued hundreds of human beings, but he has never rescued an elephant. And his greatest challenge of rescuing an elephant, what do you think was his greatest, elephant, uh, greatest challenge in rescuing an elephant? Doing CPR. Where is the elephant's heart? Would you know where the elephant's heart is? Would I know where the elephant's heart is? Let alone do CPR on which part of the body? Thankfully, he knew. And so there was a happy ending. A wonderful rescue story. Our own version of it, under God's sovereignty. My wife and I were walking um, on our day off for a prayer walk at East Coast Park. And then I stopped to send an urgent message to solve something in church. She walked ahead, and then I finally caught up with her. Now I found that she had stopped, and she was on the phone. And then she pointed to a baby, a young baby bird that was on the ground. And I looked at it, it's familiar. I don't know a lot of birds, but it's familiar because it's a sunbird, right? A sunbird is very small, and it had fallen from the nest. And my wife was on the phone to, to Acres, an a animal rescue agency, to get some advice to what do we do now. So as she was on the phone getting those instructions, I picked up the baby sunbird, and there were big red ants all over it, right? Biting it, obviously to kill it, and then to eat it. It's like watching Animal Planet Life, up close and personal. And that's how it looked. Can you see? That's how it looked. Red ants, the ones that bite and it stings, right? They're all over this tiny, tiny sunbird. So what did I do? So as Mona was still taking instructions and, and how to rescue the sunbird, I tried picking them off one by one. But you know what? This red ants and their bites and their grip was like glue, like super glue. And I was so afraid as I tried to pull it off, it just wouldn't come off. I stretched out the wing of the little bird. I was so afraid I might pull off its very fragile wings and fragile limbs. 
finally, by God's grace, I managed to pull out every single deadly red end and its grip on that bird. And this is how it looked. Nothing like a salvation story. I felt so good. Mona felt so good. I think she was proud of me also. I think she held my hand tighter as we walked back to the car, appreciating the hero in me. But I think that was only my imagination. There is nothing comparable to a rescue story. Nothing like salvation stories. All our efforts, all our passion, all our heart poured into a saving moment is always worth it. If saving an animal or saving a bird is so significant, how much more precious for now and eternity it is to save human life. Whatever you and I do not know or agree about Christmas, Christmas is God's incom incomparable love poured out into saving us from our most deadly dangers of Satan, sin and death. So here in Luke 2, we read of Jesus' humble birth that lies at the heart of God's rescue plan Rescue plan for you and me, every single person, boy or girl, young or old, men or women, whatever race you are, here is God's incomparable story of salvation. And in this portion, it is told in three parts. The law, Mary and Jesus. Simeon, Mary and Jesus. Anna, Mary and Jesus. And finally, when you take off the biblical characters, that God uses to usher in His salvation plan, it's down to Jesus and you and me. So that's where we're headed. And begins this way. Which way? And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb, opens the womb, shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. What's the background to this and what's the importance for us? God, holy God, had given His holy law through Moses, to Moses, through Moses, to his people Israel, whom he called out of slavery to be his holy people. In that sense, when you understand that backdrop, God's law was God's spiritual GPS for Israel to be what? To be a holy nation in a fallen, unholy world. God's spiritual GPS through the law would cover everything in Israel's life, both national and personal, from birth to death, from cradle to grave from raising children to honouring parents and everything in between, the coming in and the going out of Israel's life. And so in Leviticus chapter 12, it would say this, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Say to the Israelites, A woman becomes, who becomes pregnant, gives birth to a son, will be ceremonial unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. And then it goes on. So at the end of 40 days, they, in this account, Joseph and Mary, 
travel about five miles, about seven kilometers up to Jerusalem. Why up? Because Jerusalem is on a mountain. You always travel up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. And they travel up to the mountain from Bethlehem to fulfill two acts in obedience to God's law to keep them holy. First, the purification of the mother. Secondly, the consecration of a child, the firstborn. But both have the same purpose. How to keep mothers and how to keep the firstborn as part of God's covenant, holy family. So the background to the consecration of the firstborn comes from a passage like Exodus 13. In Exodus 13, it says this, In days to come, when your son asks you, let me just pause there, right? What has your children asked you recently about the way you act, about the decisions you make? In Israel's life, whenever they do things, in, in the days to come, when your son or your daughter asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the exodus, saving them from idolatrous Egypt, saving them from Pharaoh, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, what did the Lord do? What can God do against the most powerful human king? The Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord, what? In response for God's rescue, in response to God's redemption story for Israel, we sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be a sign on your hand, a symbol on your forehead, that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The simple explanation of this for our understanding, to follow God's salvation story from then to now, is this, is God's, God's incomparable rescue of Israel. Firstly, Egypt's firstborn is slain, but Israel's firstborn is spared, it's saved, it's redeemed. An important truth is God mercifully redeems His people at the costliest sacrifice of giving us a substitute. And in the Old Testament, it was the blood of an animal, an unblemished animal. So God mercifully redeems us by the costliest substitute, costliest sacrifice of a substitute. Every time an Israelite parent consecrates a child, it's a reminder of this incomparable truth. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve to die like the rest of Egypt, but God paid a price to redeem me. God paid a price to rescue me. So as God's story of salvation from Israel to Jesus, we will see the fullness of this. This is the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is God offering us His incomparable mercy and the incomparable sacrifice of His Son. Now let's see whether we understand this. How do you feel when you, are, when you are forced or compelled to obey the law of the land? How do you feel when you are asked to put on a mask? How do you feel when a safe distancing officer comes up to you and says your mask is worn in the wrong way and you thank the officer? How many of you thank the officers? Many people scold the officers. Many people reject those things. 
How do you feel when we are obeying the law of the land? How do you feel when you are obeying the law of God? When we are obeying the law of the land, whether we are obeying the law of the land or the law of God, we feel totally under authority. We feel totally out of control. We are being forced or compelled to do, some, to do something. Others call the shots on us. We have no choice. Now you take that and walk that through Joseph's and Mary's life. We saw last week in the first part of Luke 2 that the law of Emperor Augustus for a decree forced her and Joseph to come down to Bethlehem. Little did she know in being forced by a decree for population census to pay taxes, she would be fulfilling Jesus' birth in King David's town from King David's family as God had promised that the Messiah would come from. Now, she is there in Jerusalem to fulfill the law of Moses. The law of Moses will compel her to come to Jerusalem, or should we say, go up to Jerusalem to do what? To fulfill the purification of herself and the consecration of her son, the firstborn. Whether it's the law of the land of the emperor or the law of Moses, both drive home the same truth. And the same truth is this. The same truth is about the incomparable sovereignty of God. That God is most visible when it's hidden from our day-to-day -day events, whether it's a national law compelling us to do something or whether it's God's law propelling us to Jerusalem. So this is not just what we call a nice platitude. From Jesus' humble birth to His humiliating, horrendous death on the cross, God is arranging everything for salvation. You will see this from the start to the end of every gospel. You see this from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible. So what did we just hear and see in the three testimonies? Strung in between those two songs and the whole service is to make us have a saving pause, a redemptive reflection. What do we hear and see in the testimonies? How would a couple know that the child's cancer would bring them closer to God? How would Belle know that her partner or husband's adultery, which made her blind with tears, will be used by God to open her eyes to her true security in God's love, not in man's fickle love, in God's covenant, steadfast, dependable love. Each was experiencing what? Each was experiencing God's incomparable sovereignty. Where God is hidden, He's most visible when He's most hidden. From the manger to Calvary, that is the story. That God can weave, can weave in the cancer of the child to bring about the salvation of his parents. That God can massage in the unfaithfulness of a spouse to bring out the faithfulness of God. Do you believe that? Maybe some of your circumstances of your life has spun out of control. Maybe you feel you're just compelled to do things, forced to do things, stuck in things. But please believe this gospel truth is of incomparable sovereignty of God 
that he's most visible when he's most hidden. So on all your seats, there's a magazine. It's Impact Magazine. It's a local Christian magazine that has gone on for decades. Like with all Christian literature, everybody's struggling, and so they called us and we decided to support them. And so we bought 400 copies. And the whole, the whole issue is focused on the sovereignty of God. Why did they decide to write about the sovereignty of God? Because when we lived through a year of COVID-19, you expect me to believe that God has ordained this pandemic? He has unleashed this on the world? And the simple answer, I've asked that question. Can you please respond to me in your heart? You want me to believe that God has sovereignly ordained and unleashed this pandemic upon the whole human race and your answer, biblically, Christianly? Yes. And in there, I was asked to ask, write an article on sovereignty. So please read it. Because you must believe that in what we think are the circumstantial and the, and the chances of this life, God is working to bring you and me to salvation. Mary will experience God's unmatched sovereignty even more deeply in Jerusalem when she bumps into Simeon and then Anna. What do we mean by this? Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so we are introduced to Simeon as Joseph and Mary journey up to Jerusalem for all Israelites visiting the temple was the highlight of their life because the spiritual matters were the highlight. For us, visiting a mall is the highlight of our life. Or visiting a restaurant is the highlight of our life. For God's people, visiting the temple where God's presence was with them, at least temporarily, was the highlight of their life. And here we are introduced to Simeon, and there are a few key things you and me need to note about Simeon. At least four, I think, if not five. First, he's righteous and devout. And this is the righteous way the narrator's way, Luke's way of saying, Simeon was a very, he was a very unusual Israelite. He's a very rare Israelite. So people, has ever, anybody ever said to you, you're a typical Singaporean, you're a typical American, you're a typical Malaysian, you're a typical Andrean Filipino, you're a typical Hong Konger, you're a typical uh, Australian. What's typical? Oh, it's characteristic of a, of a certain people. So you're typical Singaporean, if, you, if you're Kiasu, you're a typical Singaporean, if you... What's a typical and untypical Israelite at that time? He was a rare Israelite because he was part of the remnant. Part of the remnant who remained faithful to God, faithful to God's word, and faithful to God's will. In that sense, he was always looking out for God. He was always looking out for God to do what? to return to Israel. Because after Israel had sinned against God by being idolatrous, God withdrew His presence from His people. Because the holy God cannot tolerate sin, let alone dwell with sinners. And so God withheld His blessings 
He unleashed his wrath and judgment. And Israel faced war instead of peace. She faced defeat instead of victory. She faced exile instead of the presence of God. And that is what the phrase, waiting for the consolation of Israel, actually means. Waiting for the consolation of Israel maybe comes from a passage and a prophecy like Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed, her sin has been paid for, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When was the last time someone came up to you and comforted you? And comforted you with what words or what deeds? Here is God comforting His people. You know, because you sin against me, I will bring war against you, not give you peace. I will defeat you, not give you victory. It won't be a land of milk and honey. You will go and live in exile away from me. And so here is the promise that God will finally relent, that God will finally no longer come against Israel for judgment, to discipline, to inflict exile, to usher in warfare. God instead will come, in the words of the prophet, He will come to offer salvation. He will come to offer forgiveness. He will come to offer the tenderness and the love of God. So, at least three things we know about Simeon. Righteous, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The final and fourth thing you need to know about Simeon is that everything he does, he does by the Spirit. This is not a human effort. And so by the Spirit, he pronounces this. He took Jesus in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart. Please take note. In peace. For a people who had faced war with God, judgment from God, exile from God. Now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes, my personal eyes, have seen what? Have seen that you are not merely a God of wrath, but you are a God of salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all the people a light of revelation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon did not just witness salvation accomplished, did not witness salvation accomplished, but he witnessed salvation begun. He won't live to see Jesus grow up. He won't live to see Jesus go to the cross. He won't live to see what the cross men for Israel and through Israel, the rest of the world. But he was intent, he was content that in picking up the baby Jesus, he already saw, he was waiting, remember? Waiting on God, waiting on God's comfort. And how would God's comfort come? God's comfort would finally come to the, through the weakest vessel, a baby. For him, salvation begun equals salvation accomplished. And God's salvation is revelation to the Gentiles because it is good news to the Gentiles. Why is it good news? Because it is news to them. They've never heard that God has a plan to save us from the fallenness of this world, the sinfulness of our lives, 
that God has, has a plan to save us from this cycle of grow up, grow old and die. The Gentiles, it is a light of revelation to them. The good news is news to them for the first time. Yet on the other hand, for Israel, it will be glory for Israel. Why revelation for the Gentiles? Because the good news is news to them for the first time. Why glory for Israel? Because Israel already heard the good news. But she forsook the good news. And then she experienced the bad news of God's punishment through the exiles. And Simeon sees that God will bring Israel's repetitive, addictive and inglorious sin to an end. That is why it is revelation to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. That is why Simeon can now depart in peace. This is God's silver bullet. This is God's masterclass vaccine to save both Israel and Gentiles, the whole world. But here is the message. Between, here is the message for Joseph and Mary. What is the message for Joseph and Mary? Simon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for, you expected to read, this child is appointed for peace, world peace, global peace. Sounds like Miss Universe, right? Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so you string it all together. Between salvation begun with Jesus coming into the world as a, in humble circumstances and salvation accomplished with Jesus killed on the cross will be salvation and saviour rejected. And rejected bitterly and rejected comprehensively. And so each of those phrases becomes very important for us to understand. Why? What is the fall and the rising of many in Israel? You think about it. This is God's nation, Israel. Waiting for God to send a Messiah. When God finally sends the Messiah, His chosen King to save them from defeat, to bring them back the glory days, what response did you expect to God finally sending His Messiah? Wholesale acceptance. Everybody welcoming Jesus as the Saviour. But no, some will, many won't. Some will accept him, many will reject him. A sign that is to be opposed, the language that is there, the Greek language, I'm told, it, it's basically speaking against God, rebelling against God. The idea and the language carries the overtones from the Old Testament. And finally, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So what is this blessing upon Joseph and Mary? Spoken specifically to Mary. Trace in Israel's incomparable duplicity that Israel has a knack of doing this. Israel has a knack of doing what? That she might sing songs of redemption while harboring deep rebellion in their hearts against God. And it then finally will break out to open warfare 
with the golden calf in Exodus and the painful wilderness experience to reveal that. Reveal what? To reveal their addiction to sin and our self-rescue runs deep. And so God will do this to them. Do what? You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you this 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you will keep His commandments or not. This has been an incomparable year. An incomparable year because we have never faced a pandemic like this. And what has God unleashed this pandemic for? Please always trace the storyline from Israel to the world. So much upheaval, home-based learning, work from home, cabin fever. Whatever you do not know, our incomparable sin of duplicity is that most of us live with fake niceness on the outside. We could be singing songs of redemption, but deep in our hearts, we are deeply rebellious against God. And it takes an event to expose, expose our deep rebellion against God. And so think, think about this. Think about the hiddenness. Think about Bell. That we never know how unfaithful a spouse can be until we are separated from them. No, friends. The spouse or the partner or the husband or the wife did not become unfaithful all of a sudden through COVID-19. It was always there. It was niceness that covered the badness until the opportune time for open warfare of sin exposed. And that's the message. That's the message for us. Because it leads to our own depravity and our own duplicity. We never knew how deeply unfaithful you can be to your spouse until you come to a time in which you go away for a business trip. You never knew how unfaithful you could be, how flirtatious you could be, until you're caught in a situation that somebody like Potiphar's wife comes and conducts the drip, drip, drip seduction of you. You never knew how ungrateful you can be to your parents who have worked so hard without complaining to raise you up. And when your parents tell you something you do not like or stop you from a party or stop you from a gathering, you could be so disrespectful to them. You never knew you could be so resentful of your siblings enough to wish them dead. Even when you're playing with them as young children, I don't like Titi, I don't like Koko, I wish you go away. And you ask as parents, how long? Forever. You never knew that until you had to be locked in by cabin fever day by day, sharing the same space. You never knew how impatient you were with your ambition at life, in work, in church, in ministry. We never knew how untruthful we can get with our envy of others. We never know how we can be so unloving towards God and unloving towards the people He gives us to love until we are exposed not by a virus. Cabin fever, my friends, is not the source of our sinfulness, selfishness, judgmentalism. Cabin fever is but the trigger for it. It's the expose that you and me left to ourselves have little chance, no chance of loving each other 
truly from the heart, caring for each other truly from the heart, we are all in some sense self-righteous, self-protecting, self-glorious. So you remember Mr. Mana Sabati, the one we started with? How did he do CPR on a baby elephant? How did he know where the elephant's heart was? Yes, yes, he was a rescue worker. But it was his passion, it was his concern, it was his hobby that one day he chanced upon a YouTube video of where the elephant's heart was. And in the moment of emergency, he knew how to do CPR. God does not need to chance upon a video clip of your life. Singing praises to him externally, but harboring deep rebellion against him. God does not need that because God has a 24-7, 365-day CCTV upon your hearts. That's why he knows what needs curing is your heart. When Jesus came, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And the sick know how to bury the evilness, the sinfulness of our hearts under the niceness of religion, under the niceness of ministry, under the niceness of morality. On the surface, we are all nice people. But what Simeon says to Mary, that the coming of Jesus will do this. Only Jesus can surface this. Surface what? Jesus comes to expose our hidden rebellion and addiction to self-rescue. That we can cover up our sin and say, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem in my heart. I don't need a CPR from God. No, friends. Simeon was saying that from Israel's history, there'll be no consolation for Israel, no true comfort for Israel until their hidden rebellion is exposed, until their hidden rebellion is confessed, until their hidden rebellion is redeemed. We call this the prerequisite to salvation. Don't confess sin, don't need saviour. If you don't confess sin in your heart, you don't need a saviour for your heart. So Jesus will come into Israel's life and Jesus will trigger this. And because he will trigger this expose from the religious teachers to the layman, salvation began with his birth, salvation accomplished by his death will indeed be so bitterly Rejected. Sorry, sorry. Let me go back. And so our hidden rebellion must be exposed, confessed, and repented of. So Jesus in his life, he'll be so bitterly betrayed by Judas. He'll be so thoroughly denied by Peter, who said that if all turn against you, I will never turn. He'll be so lightly exchanged for Barabbas, when Pilate asks, who do you want? Who do you want? You want Jesus or you want Barabbas? We want Barabbas to be let go. We want Jesus to be condemned. He'll be so comprehensively rejected by the whole nation. He'll be so cruelly crucified by firstly Jewish leaders and Gentile leaders. That's what it means. And the only thing he's come to do under God is to be the 24-7 CCTV of your heart 
lightly singing songs of redemption, but addictively rebellious against God. It is this that will pierce Mary's soul. Did you notice the word also? Because like son, like mother. Not like mother, like son. It will pierce her as much as it will pierce Jesus, her son. Like that Roman sword that thrusts into a very soul. You ever watch movies and you don't want that to happen? Oh my goodness, the, the hero is going to be killed. Bang! A sword goes right through him. I remember waking from an appendicitis operation. As I awoke and the anesthesia worn off, I felt like they left a knife in my stomach. My goodness, the pain was piercing. In a nutshell, Jesus do good, look wrong. Attitude all through life. He would do good. They will accuse him of wrong. He will heal on the Sabbath. They say he's breaking the law. He, has, he will come and offer salvation to the Gentiles. He says he's mixing with the wrong company. He will do good but look wrong. And he'll be so falsely accused and so wrongly judged. And then, finally, he'll be killed. It is this that will pierce Mary's soul. Jesus comes into our world knowing this piercing fully. Mary comes into Jesus' world knowing this slowly and incrementally. And so, in hearing the Christmas message, where will God take you and me? He will take you from, He will take you and me from our presumed niceness on the surface to our hidden sinfulness and rebellion in our heart and expose it in open warfare against God. He will do that. And maybe He has done that during COVID-19, that you and me are not so nice in the first place. Then we come to Anna and her incomparable message. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when, when she was a virgin, and then, and then as a widow, until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So what can we learn from Anna? Like Simeon, there are a few markers of who she is. She is the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was now advanced in years, an old woman in the Jewish temple, but obviously in the outer courts. She was married only for a short time and widowed for the rest of her life. If you have met widows like that, her widowhood, Anna, would be a picture of Israel's prolonged widowhood waiting for the bridegroom to finally come, her true bridegroom. But to get the full impact of Simeon and Anna's message to Mary, we actually have to focus on Mary. Because the whole account zooms in to Mary, and Mary being brought up to speed, 
about the child she has born, the Son of God. And what is his mission for us? And what is this? Mary, verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, submissive to them. And his mother Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. The important thing is that as Mary realizes that the child she bears is the Son of God, but he will be so comprehensively rejected and so cruelly killed on the cross, only then she will not lose heart. And who does God send as incomparable preparation for her? He sends Simeon to prepare her heart for the incomparable joy and the incomparable pain. And then she sent Anna to console Mary. So that's how God works in our lives. How? In ending, three summaries. It's going to be about Jesus coming as the Christ and offering Christmas and us. And Jesus coming as the Christ, offering Christmas, as we see in this account, is about incomparable waiters, incomparable exposers, and incomparable consolers. With incomparable waiters, whether you look at Simeon, who waited all his life, Anna, who waited all her life, and Mary, who would treasure this in her heart until she sees her son dies on the cross. All three of them are waiters. Faithful Israel, the remnant, are waiters. So as waiters, we don't run ahead of God's time. We don't lessen divine waiting. We don't quicken divine hiddenness prematurely. And where do we see this? We saw this from the start of God's rescue story in Genesis. Every time each of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, tried to fast forward and to, in Malay, champo tangan, or in Hokkien, kepo, add in their own rescue stories, they messed up God's salvation plan. You must never run ahead of God's timing for God's mission, for God's people. It will involve divine waiting. It will involve not quickening divine hiddenness. I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. So I do not know. How long have you waited? How long have you waited for a crisis to blow over in your life? How long have you waited for things to improve in your marriage? How long have you waited for your children to have a better relationship with you? How long have you waited for things to work out well in church? How long are we going to wait for this COVID-19? Here is the good news for me as a preacher. By December 28, I don't need to preach with this shield anymore. Ah. <laughs> Hooray! So it's just three more days. <laughs> right. Five more days before, December, before the New Year's Eve. How long? You can't fast forward that. You can't quicken that. You have to wait for God's timing of things step by step. But here is the danger and temptation. If you are tempted to short-circuit it in some way, you will grieve God and bring great harm to people around you. And so pray to be an incomparable waiter as you take part in God's incomparable salvation. Then just realize that Jesus is a master exposing our incomparable depravity and duplicity. He will expose Judas' self 
righteousness. He will, he will expose Peter's self-sufficiency. Though all deny you, I will never deny you. He will expose the leader's fake piety. He will expose the people's wrong panacea. Give us a human, a human Messiah. We just want out from Rome. They should be longing for. We want out from Satan and sin and death. And how might Jesus be exposing your sin? How might he be exposing your fake niceness and your deep rebellion shown in open warfare? I do not know, but you put your ear to the ground. The average pastor like myself and pastoral team here, we have had to do more damage control, more counselling than ever before. Virtually, on-site. Why? Is it all sudden this was triggered? No. It's always been there. But God is exposing this. Exposing this. And you have a choice. You have a choice of whether when you deal with this and say, uh, we have a communication problem. This is just personality differences. Or you have a choice and say, no, this is me being really sinful and selfish and her being really sinful and selfish. We both need the Lord. It's not merely a communication problem. It's not a personality crash, uh, clash. It's not simply irreconcilable differences. This is not simply a difficult child. This is not simply a problematic circumstance. We really need Jesus. Finally, this is the incomparable, we are incomparable consolers. That Jesus' salvation, not sin, will have the last word. Did you notice? Who spoke to Mary first? It was, it was Simeon. And Simeon brought a message of incomparable joy and incomparable pain. And then Anna will come and bring the message. She sees the redemption of the whole of Israel. Can you imagine if we swap the two of them and Mary bum into Anna first? And Anna says, right, this child that you bear will bring about the redemption of Israel. And then she bumps into Simeon later, and Simeon will talk about, talk about this child is going to bring, expose the rebellion of God's people, and this child is going to die a painful death. It will mean that sin will have the last word. But in God's incomparable sovereignty, she bumps firstly into Simeon, and then into Anna. And the last word is, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus will say that. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he will cry over Jerusalem. She has sinned against God. But the same spiritual, morally bankrupt Jerusalem will receive the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. You know, I was just reading up on the temple area. How big the temple area was that women could enter? It could carry a capacity of 6,000 people. You ever bump into someone who came up to you at the indoor stadium, 5,000 people say, I have a word for you. From the Lord. It's a precise word. You see God orchestrating that down to a T. That's why Mary does not lose heart. That's why Mary does not lose faith. Because she has been prepared by Simeon and finally consoled by Anna. That though our sin is grievous, Jesus' salvation word will have the last word. So how about you? So Mary accepted God's sovereignty over her life. 
from the conception to his growing up, every area of her life to Jesus passing away. Will you accept God's sovereignty of your life from birth to death and everything in between? Did you listen to Megan's testimony? And Megan's testimony is like, mm, well, nothing very much, right? She just grew up in a good Christian home. You know the beauty of growing up in a good Christian home where your parents are not perfect but sincere in wanting to teach you God's word and point you to God and point you to Jesus all the way from your kindergarten to your primary school to your, to your JC, to your poly, to your university. And then to see you come up and say, when you baptise me as an infant and now I'm standing here to say that God has been sovereign over my life, that's so wonderful. When you download our e-bulletin, you find that our children's church is asking, asking for what? Our teachers are tired from a holy of Zooming, preparing all the songs, preparing all the lessons, and many of them are taking a break. And we need people to step up. So if you see the numbers there, and then it's watching, taking part in God's sovereignty from childhood to adulthood, that every step of the way, we are teaching them God's word and ministering the gospel to them. And so that's how we can take part in God's sovereignty. Last but not least, no, Mona and I and that sunbird that we rescued, actually, we didn't give you the whole picture. It didn't end that way. It didn't end that way. Because when she ran acres and asked them for help, what's the best help? And the person on the phone said, the best help you can give is to leave the sunbird chick back on the ground. Just make a, a, a nest, a makeshift nest, leave it on the ground and hope that the mother will come to rescue it. I had two choices in hearing that. Not much, not much help. If I made a nest there, the ants will come and bite it to death. It will die. If I take it home, I have a cat. It will also die. As I walk away, making that very hard decision, and to and fro, Mona, to and fro, it was a moral decision on our Sabbath day. Leave it here, take it home. Leave it here in the natural surroundings, take it home to our artificial surroundings. Will it survive? Will it survive? So the, and she kept saying to me, listen, they said leave it here. So I listened to my wife. I left it there. You know what I walk away with? I walk away conflicted, a bit split in my heart. I saved it only for it to die. I saved it only for it to die later. Not much use, right, my, my salvation? But I had no choice. And that's, my friend, the choice before us. Save only to die again or save truly to live forever. Everything else we do is saving each other only to die again. But believing in Jesus is what will save us forever and ever. This is the incomparable message. And you won't, you and I will not partake in this incomparable joy unless we meditate deeply and respond truly in our hearts. And in a small way, this service, with its meditative songs, with its sincere testimonies, and with this proclamation 
of the humble birth of Jesus again is to help us do this. Reflect deeply so that we can finally sing joy to the world. Spend some moments in quiet reflection, but more importantly, spend some moments in humble confession, in hearing the gospel afresh, the good news of God's offer of love, God's offer of true peace. We must thank you and praise you, Heavenly Father, for you have sent your Son to expose our deep-rooted rebellion against you, to lead us into confession of our sin, to lead us to our repentance. For you do not delight in just confronting us, but you delight in saving us. And as we heard the gospel story again, you are always working your incomparable sovereignty and you are most visible when you are hidden, working all things in our life that we might come to acknowledge that we are deeply scarred, deeply flawed, and totally helpless to rescue ourselves. Then under the veneer of fake niceness or goodness, in life, through reputation or through ministry, that there is that ugliness in us. And we ask that that would lead us to your Son, that would lead us to his humble birth, that would lead us to his cross for us. And in beholding this, may true joy come into our hearts as we, as we are liberated from every effort to save ourselves and trust completely in Jesus. May that true joy guard us and fill us the rest of our days. Amen.